I want to welcome everyone to our Roots class tonight. This will be session number three. Actually, we're going to be covering chapters 7, 8, and 9 in the story. In the last session, we talked about the deliverance when Moses comes and delivers them out of bondage. And then the, the law, the new law that God's going to establish so that he can dwell among his people. And that led to the wilderness wanderings. Tonight, we're going to deal with the battle begins. It'd be uh, chapter 7 in the story. When we begin tonight, Moses is dead and now Joshua is in charge. The irony is that Israel now finds itself in the same place they were 40 years earlier. The entire generation of adult men has all died in the wilderness wanderings. The land still flows with milk and honey, and giants still inhabit the fortified cities. The promised land is still the promised land. And the question is this, nothing's changed. They're 40 years later, but nothing has really changed. The promised land hasn't changed. The question is, has Israel changed? Joshua 1 verse 1. Here we go. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the great sea on the west. No one, listen carefully, no one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is not a new promise. What's interesting, it's not a new promise. It's the same promise he gave to Moses. The promised land hasn't changed. God, 40 years earlier, gave these same promises to the children of Israel. But they refused to follow God's word and put their faith in him. This upper story plan of God for Israel to take possession of the promised land is the same promise of 40 years before. What will happen in the lower story? Will Israel this time, 40 years later, advance by faith? Or will they retreat back into the wilderness, turn their face back toward Egypt, like the generation before them? In verse 5 above, God makes a promise to Joshua. This is God's part. Now, look at Joshua's part. God's part was what? No one will ever be able to stand against you all the days of your life. That's God's part. That's God's power. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you for, or forsake you. That's God's part. That's his, he says, this is what I will do for you if you'll believe me. Now, what's Joshua's part? Go down to verse 6. Be strong and courageous. This is Joshua's part. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the laws my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to the right or to the left. That you may be successful, then you will be successful wherever you go. Do not, here comes, what's Joshua's part? Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. 
You remember in that session we had last time where God says, I'm going to show you how you can navigate the intersection between me and you when I move into your neighborhood. When I, my presence comes to live among Israel, how will you navigate life with me here? Do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, then, you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. <clears throat> now inside that text, there's four characteristics of God's people. Four expectations of God for his people. Number one, be strong and very courageous. Be a people of power and a people of courage. Now I want to ask you, do you think this has application to the church? What he's asking of Joshua, what he's asking of Israel, do you think it has application to the church? Number one, be strong, be courageous. Church, be a people of power, be a people of courage. Number two, be careful to obey all the law that God gave to Moses. Be a people of the word. Be a people who are not, don't just know the word, but they live under the power and the authority of the word, obedient to the word. Number three, do not deviate from the law. The word of God. Don't turn to the right. Do you hear what he told Joshua? Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. And if you'll be obedient to the law and, and face God, Face his calling upon your life. You'll be a prosperous people. That's what he promised Israel. I'll, I'll prosper you. And number four, do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth or your meditations. You'll be a shining people. You'll be a shining people. In other words, the light of God will shine in you, through you, and around you, and the world will know God because God is with you. A people marked by God. You see, when, when Israel was going to enter the promised land, everyone in the promised land would know that God has entered the promised land because God is with them. Now, here comes an interesting point. In that part of the story with Joshua, there's going to be a mark, a mark of the covenant promises of God. And this mark is going to be physical. He's going to, God's going to place a mark upon the people. Go to Joshua 5 verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gilbroth Haraloth. The Israelites, why? Why does he need to circumcise the Israelites again? It's been 40 years since they originally had the opportunity to enter the promised land. The Israelites had stopped the practice of circumcision in the wilderness wanderings. That generation of men that were 20 years of age and older, they had all died. And in the process, they had stopped the circumcision. And God has now renewed his mark upon his people. It's like that entire generation, 601,728 people, men of that age, the Bible says. They had been circumcised. They had been marked. But they all died outside the promised land. God is going to renew his mark upon his people. The mark of ownership. So where did this mark of ownership called circumcision for men, for boys, where did it come from? 
Where did it, it originated with the first Hebrew, the first Jewish man, if you want to call him that, Abraham, the first Israelite. So when Joshua gets ready to enter the promised land, God tells him, I want you to begin circumcising this generation again. Mark them. So let's go back to Abraham, see where it begins. Genesis 17 verse 12. This is God talking to Abraham. For the generation to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. It's a physical mark of ownership of God upon his people, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not from your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in, the, in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So it began, this, this physical mark of, of, of the flesh began with Abraham. And Abraham's children carried it on. Now he's telling Joshua, before you're going to enter the promised land, we're going to renew this again. You're going to start again. This generation of men will be marked, a physical mark on their flesh of circumcision. Did, did you know that... It began with Abraham. Joshua's carrying it into the promised land. Baby Jesus was circumcised. He was circumcised. He was marked. On the eighth day, he was obedient. Jesus was obedient to the law of Moses. And also, so baby Jesus was uh, marked. He was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the story of Simeon in the Bible. Interesting story on the eighth day. But here's the other part. The Antichrist, the beast... In Revelation, we'll also have a mark as well. There's a spiritual war. There's a, what's the mark? The mark is ownership. It's a mark that you belong to me. The Antichrist will also have a physical mark that you belong to me. In Revelation 14.9, it talks about that mark. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark. Now it's not circumcision, but he has a mark. And the mark is a physical mark of ownership. And if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury. You see, this mark from the Antichrist, from the beast in Revelation, means you don't belong to God. You belong to Satan, to the devil. You're going to receive the, the, you're going to drink the wine of God's fury, the wrath of God, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented. He, he, who's he? They've been marked by the other spirit power. You belong to the other spirit power. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image. Or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. The ownership of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. 
The spirit war. It's not just in Revelation. The spirit war is God is marking those who belong to him as Joshua leads Israel into the promised land. Have you ever thought about, let's think about the church for a minute. Have you ever thought about Christian baptism as a public marking upon us? Jesus was baptized. Why? Jesus was circumcised. Why? We're followers of Jesus. Have you ever thought about baptism as being a public marking of yourself? In Colossians 2, verse 11, it says this. In him, referring to Jesus, you were also, also circumcised. Now, he's not talking about the circumcision like Joshua's. In Jesus, you were also circumcised. In the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism. You see, the, uh, the Apostle Paul writes the church at Colossae and he's connecting circumcision to baptism. It's a marking. It's an ownership. Christ is circumcising you, uh, claiming you, marking you spiritually in baptism. And having been buried with him in baptism, raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Let me put it like this. I've recently started thinking like this. Baptism is a public declaration that we're changing sides in the spirit war. That in the spiritual war, we are born sinners. We are born um, outside, away from God because of our sin nature. All of us have sinned and we all fall short of God's glory, separated from God's glory. So we belong to the enemy. We belong to Satan. Jesus comes to redeem us, take us out of Egypt, lead us into the promised land. Baptism is a spiritual public declaration that in this spiritual war between good and evil, between God and Satan, between the holy and the unholy, we're changing sides. And we're doing it publicly. We're doing it publicly that we're changing sides in the spirit war. So, let's go back to Joshua. They're circumcised, and what's next? Jericho will be the first test. A very specific test. Jericho was the first city they, that Israel would encounter on the other side of the Jordan in the Promised Land. And the test is specific. There's going to be seven trumpets, and seven priests, and seven days. And here's the question. Like the generation that preceded them, will they follow the word of God? That's always the test. Will the people believe and follow the word of God? Joshua 6 verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its kings, and its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the sound of a long blast of the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse around the people, and the people will go up, every man straight in. Now, now stop in the scripture for a moment. Does that sound like the craziest military tactic in all of mankind? 
to walk around this fortified city seven times, seven trumpets for seven days. And then shout and the walls will fall down. Will the people believe him? It's the ultimate test. Will you believe the word of God? Verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, here's the key word, advance. Advance. Let's go. Let's go. March around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. Now here's what's interesting. You know who made the announcement to the people advance? Joshua. Joshua is one of the two people that 40 years before wanted to advance. But they wouldn't let him. The vote was 10 to 2. And now 40 years later, Joshua has an opportunity to advance. This time, they follow him. Everyone was killed. They advanced, the walls came tumbling down, and listen carefully, everyone was killed. A lot of people struggle with this, spiritually speaking. They read the story of Jericho. The women were killed, the children were killed. Everyone was killed. Everyone except Rahab, the prostitute, and her family. Does this seem harsh to you? In the middle of that battle, God had very clearly said, take no plunder. Take no plunder. It was unclean from God's perspective. Take no plunder. But there was a man named Achan. And Achan's sin in that uh, battle of Jericho cost the Israelites deeply in the battle of Ai. Achan died a horrible death from this sin. So even though the people as a whole had, had agreed to advance, there was a man inside the people, Achan, that was his name, and he disobeyed God's law. And because he disobeyed God's law, even though the nation as a whole was obeying Joshua who was obeying God, there was sin in the camp. And that, that had great, people are going to die because there's sin in the camp. Let me give you an illustration. Before the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy on June 6, 1944, General George Patton issued this charge to the troops. Listen carefully to his charge. I don't want to get any messages saying I am holding my position. We are not holding. We are advancing constantly. And we are not interested in holding onto anything. Our basic plan of operation from General Patton at Normandy, our basic plan of operation is to advance and to keep on advancing regardless of whether or not we have to go over, under, or through the enemy. Church, listen carefully. These are our orders from our king. Advance. The church has been called like Joshua was called to advance under the authority and the power of Christ, advance. We're on offense. We're not on defense. We're not trying to hold some territory. We're advancing. That's why back during COVID, I remember after just a couple of weeks of being shut down, our leadership got together. We talked about it, prayed about it, and we decided no more defense. We're, we're on offense. We've been called to move out, to advance to stop trying to hold territory. Advance. We're in the kingdom business. In Matthew 28, 
Verse 18, Jesus came to them and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Does that sound like advance or retreat to you? Does that sound like offense or defense to you? Does this apply to the church today as it did to Joshua at Jericho? Advance! In the lower story, I've told you this since we started this series, that there's this upper story plan of God that he begins, that he has the power to initiate, but his story plays out down here on the earth in the lower story. In the lower story, the giants are bigger than the Israelites. But in the upper story, God is bigger than the giants. The battle begins. But the battle belongs to God. Here we go. Chapter number 8. A few good men and women. Here's an illustration. Albert Einstein once said that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting different results. If this is the real definition, then you might say that Israel had moments and years of insanity. Listen carefully to these numbers. Of the 330 years in the promised land, under the judges, they were not kings, they were judges. That's like rulers, governors, kind of a position. Of the 330 years in the promised land, we know that they lived under oppression for 111 years out of the 330. 111 years of the 330 years they lived in the promised land, they were under oppression by some other power. That oppression came under six different nations with periods of obedience followed by periods of disobedience. How many times did we see the following cycle of the nation of Israel inside that 330 years? Here it comes. Israel sins. God removes his protection. A foreign nation occupies and oppresses Israel. Israel suffers. Israel repents. Israel cries out to God. God hears their cries and raises up a judge to lead them out of oppression, out of bondage. Prosperity and peace returns to the people. And then the cycle begins all over again. It's called insanity. Over and over and over again the same cycle inside that 330 years in the promised land. To understand God and his divine nature, we should study how he works inside this cycle of man. Remember, he chooses the most unusual people to do the most astounding things. Why did he pick Abraham when Abraham was so old? Why did he pick Moses? Why did he pick fishermen? Why did he pick these people to do these amazing works? In the period of the judges, there were 15 judges in all who ruled over Israel. God used a woman. Her name was Deborah. God used a farmer. His name was Gideon. And God used a supernatural birth through a barren couple to produce a man named Samson who in reality was a woman-crazed, long-haired muscle man. That's, how, that's what described him. And, and through these people, he did amazing acts 
In 1 Corinthians 1.27, we read this this past session. This is how God chooses people. God chose the foolish things of the world. Samson. He chooses fishermen to carry the message of the gospel. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one would boast before him. No one's going to be, say, be able to say, it's because of my resume, it's because of my training, it's because of my intellect, it's because of my power. No, every one of those people who were really used by God would say, because of him. Gideon. Let me give it, let's go through a few of these that God chose. During the time of the judges. In Judges 6 verse 1. Look at the life cycle of, look at this cycle of insanity. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. So here comes the cycle. God has prospered them, and they fall into sin. God brings in the Midianites to oppress them. Go down to verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. See the cycle? And when the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. God's reminding Israel that there were people living here when you got here and I gave this land to you. I took it away from them. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. That's why they're impoverished. You have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abzerite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So here's Gideon sitting, he's in hiding, and suddenly the angel of the Lord comes and makes an announcement to the most unlikely person, a scared farmer. And he says what? The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So how do you think Gideon will respond to the angel of the Lord? When the angel of the Lord has now declared that you are not who you were, you are now someone new. Because God has anointed you, called you, appointed you for this calling. Don't miss the context here. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press to hide the grain from the bandits. That's how life is in those days. In this desperate moment, Gideon hears these words. The Lord is with you. And because he is with you, you are a mighty warrior. You just don't know it yet. How would you answer? The Lord is with you. You are a mighty warrior. How would you answer? I want you to think about two things in that question. I want you to think about Israel and I want you to think about the church. The Lord is with you. You are a mighty warrior. Judges 6 verse 13. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? 
Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord, listen carefully, now the Lord, this is in Gideon's heart, now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. Who abandoned who? The Lord hadn't abandoned Israel. Israel abandoned the Lord. Gideon uses the word sir when he addresses to the angel, the angel of the Lord. That's probably a good idea. So how will God answer the why? Because Gideon is saying, why are we in this mess? If you are who you say you are, and I'm some kind of a mighty warrior because you're with me, then how did we get in this mess? Verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go. Advance. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? You know what God was saying to Gideon in that moment? This is so powerful. You are my answer. I'm going to make you my answer. Am I not sending you? Listen, the church is God's answer to the world today. The church. Pause. And I want you to look at us today. Can you hear these same words today to the church? Go in strength. I am sending you. All my heart's desire is that the church would awaken from its slumber and understand that God has empowered us to go in the power, His power, to redeem the world, to go share this good news, this gospel. And what is our likely response when God turns it back to us? When we hear what Gideon heard, I've chosen you, I've appointed you, I've called you, now go. Advance, advance with the kingdom. Verse 15, but Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? Can you hear that in the church today? How can I have any influence in, in this area, in, in my town, in my state, in my country? How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. He, he's just looking at the power of himself rather than acknowledging the power of God that is manifest in the calling of God. This whole problem with Midian began by God's people not believing and obeying God, right? How did they get in this mess where he's having to hide to, to grind his, his uh, to, to harvest his crop? How did they get in this mess? Because they had refused to believe and obey God's word. And what is Gideon demonstrating in the same thing? He's, he's doing the same thing individually that the nation has done corporately. By refusing to acknowledge the word of God that has been given. What about us? Finally, Gideon agrees to believe God after several convincing supernatural signs by God. Verse, chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men. You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. So Gideon assembles the army and what's God's response? You got too many, too many soldiers. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved Israel, saved her, announce now to the people. I love this verse. He says, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Man, they scattered. 
Because they were all afraid. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left the military while 10,000 remained. 32,000 reduced to 10,000 reduced to 300. That's what's going to happen in the story. They began with 32,000, they then go to 10,000, and then God reduces them to 300. Is this, like Jericho, the craziest military tactic on earth? Why don't you just keep the 32,000? Because then you would say you did it by your power. And God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak, to shame the strong, that we would not boast in his presence. 300 water lappers. When you read the story, 300 water lappers with jars of clay, torches and trumpets versus countless thousands. The Bible says the Midianites, you couldn't even count them. And there's 300 water lappers with jars of clay torches and trumpets who fights and wins this battle with the Midianites whose battle is it is it the 300 men church who fights in the battle of advancing the kingdom of Christ across the earth whose battle is it it's his Jesus says all power and dominion and authority has been given to me and I'm sending you whose battle is it it's his battle Judges 7.13. Gideon arrived. And by the way, let me say how he does it. Dreams. God uses dreams in the Midianite camp. He uses fear and he uses self-destruction. He only had 300 soldiers. So how's God going to do it? He's going to put dreams inside the heads of the Midianite troops. He's going to make those dreams bring fear into the camp. And he's also going to make them fight themselves. Verse 13. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend. He's sneaking into the Midianite camp. Gideon arrives just as a man was telling his friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. How do these soldiers know about this farmer guy named Gideon who was terrified? When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Now let's go down to verse 22. When the 300, 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp of Midian to turn on each other with their swords. They destroyed themselves. Let's be honest tonight. When do we get in the most trouble in our lives, individually and as a nation? When we did what Israel did. They refused to listen to the Word of God and follow the Word of God. A turning away from the Word. The good news is this. Israel and we today are just one step away from the blessing. 
If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you'll turn around and face God, will you not be accepted? If you'll just turn around. Don't, don't, don't put your back to God, but put your face toward God. Just turn around and accept his word. In 1 John 1, 9, everyone knows this verse. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he'll forgive us of our sins and he'll purify us from all unrighteousness and can I just say this everything else is insanity to just keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over expecting that this time you'll get a different result is insanity chapter 9 in the story the faith of a foreign woman this is one of the most amazing stories for the Gentile church in all the Bible. By the time we reach chapter 9 in the story, and you will see how God is raising up a great nation and a family called Israel, you might begin to wonder this, because I do. What about me? I see what he's doing with Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and this bloodline. I see what he's doing there. It's a supernatural move of God. But what about Gentiles? What about those who aren't born into this, this uh, Hebrew, Israelite, Jewish bloodline? How can I get into this family? Tonight will be a refreshing answer to that important question as we see the upper story revelation of the lower story event called the Kinsman Redeemer. We are still in the times of the judges between Joshua and the first king called Saul. The lower story picks up with the family of Ephratites in Bethlehem which are experiencing a famine and it's around 700 years before Christ. Okay, this story we're going to start it's about 700 years before Jesus. This famine is so severe that Elimelech decides to take his wife Naomi and their two young sons, Malon and Kilion. They're going to take them to Moab. Now you know things would be bad to have to go to Moab. Moabites were enemies of Israel because they had oppressed Israel previously for 18 years. And they're only going to move this, this family, Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons. They're only going to make this move from Bethlehem to Moab because they're starving to death. There's a famine in the land. Shortly after their arrival in Moab, Naomi's husband dies and leaves her alone with uh, two sons. They're all Jewish and they live in a non-Jewish land, Moab. Moabites. The two sons marry Moabite women. The two sons, Jewish men, under the covenant of Abraham. Two sons, Jewish men, marry Moabite women, Gentiles. And ten years later, both of the sons die, leaving Naomi, a Jew, alone in the land of Moab, Sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? 
Naomi receives the news that God has blessed her homeland with good food again. And Naomi makes plans after some 10 years to return to Bethlehem with her two husbandless daughters-in-law. And by the way, both of these daughter-in-laws of Naomi's are Gentile backgrounds. Okay, they're Gentiles. Naomi pleads with the two girls to remain in their homeland of Moab. One agrees to remain behind, but Ruth, now you got to get the story, who is a Gentile Moabite, the, the enemies of Israel. Ruth refuses, and in essence, in this moment, Ruth accepts the Lord God of Israel, the God of Naomi, her mother-in-law, to be her God. Let me tell you where I get that. Ruth 1.16. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people, that's Israel, will be my people. Your God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be my God. Where I die... Excuse me, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. This decision of Ruth to go with Naomi and accept the God of Naomi's people is part of this upper story plan of God. But, but here's what makes the story so amazing. None of them know it. And there's probably a lot of people in the audience right now that you're part of God's upper story plan, but you don't know it yet either. You're, you're like Ruth and Naomi in the story right now. There's still some misery in their lives as they travel back to Bethlehem. Things are still hard for Ruth and Naomi. Let's go to verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be uh, Naomi? She's been gone now over uh, ten years. Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. When you read that, Naomi's crushed. She's hopeless. Hunger and death has been her life. At this point, and she blames God for all of her trouble, she cannot, like many people today, even in the church, she cannot see the upper story. All she can see is the lower story. She has no idea that God's working everything together for her good, and he's going to prosper her in the end. But she can't see it. Naomi and Ruth set up life again in the old homestead. And Ruth goes out to glean with those like her that live in poverty. Now you understand that a lot of this is Jewish law. Under Jewish law, you could, when you gleaned the field, when you harvested your crop, you had to leave the edges. You had to leave stuff for the poor. They always left something for the poor. 
So she's, she's going out to, to take the leftovers from the harvest because uh, they're poor people. And whose field does Ruth happen to glean in on her first day? The upper story and the lower story are going to collide. Whose field does Ruth happen to glean in just by chance that first day? Boaz. Who happens to be a close um, relative of Ruth. Excuse me, of Naomi. Of Naomi. So... Um, this is important. They're of the bloodline. Boaz just so happens to be in the field that day and he notices this woman named Ruth. He's already heard of her great love for her mother-in-law. She, uh, Boaz already knows something about her. Verse 11, Boaz replies, I've been told all about you. I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother, and these Moabites, and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. You left Moab and you came to live with the Jewish people. You, you've changed your whole life. And in verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. Boaz, I don't think he understands he's part of this upper story a collision with the lower story events of mankind. So he's going he's gonna to offer this blessing. He has no idea how this is going to turn out. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. And may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings, listen, under whose wings you have come to take Refuge. You have come from a pagan Moabite town to take refuge under the people of Israel. The upper story is colliding with the lower story. Now I'm not sure that Boaz really understood that those wings of the Lord in that blessing were going to cover both of them. In this scene, the kinsman redeemer is revealed. Under the Jewish law, this is a law. Under the Jewish law, the kinsman redeemer would marry her, love her, take her, care of her, pay off her debts, and redeem the land. The land was their identity and the family name must continue. That's the idea of kinsman redeemer. Now, everybody pause in the story for a moment because I want you to see why this is such a big deal to the Gentile church. The kinsman redeemer is a shadow, a preview of the coming Messiah Jesus. And what will the coming Messiah Jesus kinsman redeemer do? Listen again. He would marry her, a Gentile. He would love her, take care of her, pay off her debts, redeem the land, so that the lineage will continue. The kinsman redeemer would assume great risk and no profit to fulfill his responsibility under the Jewish law. Go to Ruth 3 verse 2. This is Naomi, the mother-in-law, talking to Ruth. Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman, uh, you, with whom servant girls um, you have been, isn't he a kinsman of ours? Here comes the kinsman redeemer. 
Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he, Boaz, lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. In my mind suddenly went the craziest thing. That sounds about as crazy as marching around Jericho seven times. And that sounds crazy. The military idea that suddenly you can let your 32,000 troops go and we'll go to battle with 300. But see, God's doing this. Through Naomi, Ruth is being instructed to do something that's going to affect even today every person hearing my voice. He will tell you what to do. Boaz will tell you what to do. Just cover, uh, lift the blanket under his, uh, his feet and you just pull yourself and the blanket over you and lay there. Verse 9. Who are you? So that's kind of laughable. You wake up in the middle of the night and somebody's laying at your feet. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Church, I want you to see the kinsman redeemer. I want you to see you, a Gentile, in the story. Spread your garment over me. Accept me. I'm an outsider. I'm poor and I'm destitute. Spread your garment, the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. The Lord What's his response? Get out of here. What are you doing here? No, 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 no. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. Look at Boaz's words above to Ruth. They are prophetic. He, I don't think he knows that they're prophetic when he speaks them because God's speaking them through Boaz. What does he say? The words prophetic are wings. The word wings and garment are used in the same way in the Hebrew language. Wings and garment. So when she says... Um, Spread the corner of your garment over me. Spread the corner of your wings over me. It was a garment for Boaz and Ruth. But our kinsman redeemer is Jesus. And he is bringing us under his wings. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed God's messengers. How I long to gather you under my wings as a hen would gather her chicks. But you will not see me again. But you are left destitute and abandoned. And you will not see me again until you cry out, Baruch Ababa Shem Adonai. I wanted to bring you under my wings, but you wouldn't let me. Church, I want to bring you under my wings, but you wouldn't let me. All of this is a revelation of this kinsman redeemer. Why would Boaz, a Jew, risk everything to redeem Ruth, a Gentile? Why would Boaz, a Jew, in this story, risk everything to redeem this Gentile? Look at the upper story. Look at the upper story. There's a revelation. Are you ready for it? Because here it comes. If you've never known this before, this is going to be uh, amazing. In Matthew 
chapter 1. Let's go, let's go 700 years into the future. Um, and now the, in, in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew 1 verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz. He's the Boaz in our kinsman redeemer story. Whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. Do you see it? Ruth, a Gentile, would be the great-grandmother of King David. Now you might say, okay, I don't get it. Can you see the upper story? Maybe you're still not getting it. Boaz knew what it was like to be a foreigner in need of a homeland without hope. Some of you would say, well, why? Because he seems to be a wealthy man living in Bethlehem. He's Jewish. All Jewish people know what it's like to be a foreigner in need of a homeland. They were slaves in Egypt, foreigners in need of a homeland. That was the promised land. That's the whole story of God. He's Jewish. So this Jewish man, Boaz, understands what it's like to be a foreigner, a Moabite in Ruth's case, needing a place to call home. Boaz and Ruth, they marry. And they have a son named Obed, who has a son named Jesse, who has a son named King David, who gener 28 generations later, 28 generations later, will have a son named Jesus. Now, why would God use a pagan Canaanite prostitute? Did you notice? Did you notice in that genealogy the name Rahab? She's the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho in the story of Joshua. Why would he use a pagan Canaanite prostitute in the genealogy of Jesus? Do you see it? Number two, why would God put a pagan Moabite in the genealogy of Jesus. It's recorded in Matthew. Why? Her name's Ruth. A Jewish man would one day redeem and take a Gentile bride. If you can't get it, I don't know how to make it more clear. All of this is a shadow of a future event where a Jewish man named Jesus would one day take a Gentile bride, the church. He would open his wings and bring her underneath his wings. And I hear these words, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and killed God's messengers, how I wanted to gather you under my wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now your house is left abandoned and desolate. And you will not see me again until. Do you know what that gap is? He didn't say you won't see me again. But you know what's going to happen? The church age will open up. The day of Pentecost will come. And for 2,000 years now, the church age has been open. In which a Jewish man has opened his wings. And invited a Gentile bride to come under the wings. The church the Gentile church of Jesus Christ. The kinsman redeemer. Ephesians 2 verse 11. 
Therefore remember the formula, that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised. You see what Joshua was doing on the way to the promised land? Remember that formerly you Gentiles, that's us, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were, you were who? You were Ruth, that Moabite. And foreigners to the covenant and promises without hope and without God. That's who we used to be. We were Ruth. But now in Christ... You who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. John 10, John 1 verse 10. He, Jesus, was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. That's the Jews. But his own did not receive him. How I wanted to gather you under my wings as a hen would gather chicks but you wouldn't let me he came to his own but his own would not receive him yet to all who have received him they are what? they are the Ruths they are the Gentiles uncircumcised Gentiles to all who have received him and believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of God do you see it children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will but children born of God that's how you get into Abraham's family children born of God our kinsman redeemer let's pray father we thank you for your word I thank you Lord that you allow Gentiles to come under your wings that you have spread your cloak over us. Now, Father, I pray that you would protect us from the evil one in the time of waiting. Awaken your bride. Send us out on this mission with the power of Christ to complete this calling by faith. In Jesus' name, and amen. Thank you.